my God. Hey, everybody. We're live here in Salt Lake City from the ski slopes in the green room for Disrupt TV. Uh, I'm Ray, uh, your co-host here. My amazing co-host, Bala Ashar, excellent producer, L, And we're going to introduce our guests in reverse order, ask them where they're coming in from. And of course, really quickly, what are we talking about today? So, Matt, what are we coming, we're coming from? Where are you coming from and what are we talking about? I'm in sunny Palo Alto, California, and I am really excited to talk about how we can speak more effectively and more confidently in the moment. Excellent. And think oh, faster, man. I hope. Yes, <laughs> so. think faster and talk smarter. Very, very much needed. Amy, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? I'm coming in from Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm really excited to talk about failure, believe it or not. No, failure is important to understanding success, and we're definitely going to get into those topics today. We've got the big Hartford-Stanford debate. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, uh, it's excellent having excellent minds on this show, and uh, we'll kick it off. L, all yours? Ready? All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I see him on TV just about every day on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top features to follow on Twitter, X, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to the first episode of 2024, Disrupt TV. Woohoo! Happy New Year, everyone. And I'm here with Bala. As you know, he's the chief digital manager of Salesforce, but he's also the author of an important book called Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success. And of course, now a number one bestseller on Amazon. But more importantly, it's not about us. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of Bala's inspirational tweets, insightful keynotes, and of course, appearances on business TV outlets like Bloomberg. But more importantly, you can catch his blog and insights on ZDNet and of course, of course, on this show. But hey, that was an amazing intro. We saw some amazing guests. But who do we have to kick off the new year? It's our privilege to have Amy Edmondson, author of The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Amy's the Novartis Professor at Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, a chair established to support the study of human interaction that lead to the creation of successful enterprise that contribute to the betterment of society. 
Amy, listen to this way. Amy has been recognized by the biannual Thinkers 50 global ranking of management thinkers since 2011, and most recently was ranked number one in 2021 and now 2023. It's like the Celtics dynasty or the Patriots. I'm dialing in from Boston, so sorry for the sports <laughs> analogies. Dynasty. Amy also received the organization's Breakthrough Idea in 2019 and Talent Award in 2017. Amy studies learning, psychological safety, and organizational learning, and her articles have been published in numerous academic and management outlets, including Administrative Science Quarterly, Academic of Management Journal, Harvard Business Review, and California Management Review. Amy's latest book, which we're going to talk about, Right Kind of Wrong, built on her prior work on psychological safety and teaming, to provide a framework for thinking about, discussing, and practicing the science of failing well. Ray, you and I need to learn about failing well. I think we've done a good job <laughs> at it. <laughs> yeah. First published in the US and UK in September of last year, the book is due to be translated into 19 additional languages and was elected, selected uh, for the Financial Times and Shorter Best Business Book of the Year Award. You can follow Amy on X at Amy C. Edmondson, E-D-M-O-N. D-S-O-N. Welcome, Amy, to Disrupt TV. Well, thank you. Thank you for that long and gracious introduction. Thanks for having me. I had to cut your bio to about a 10. Oh. You have done a lot. That bio is not, I've been around a long time. I have not meant to be read aloud. I am sorry about that. No, that was awesome. You're great. Well, we were honored to have you here. And I think one of the most interesting things that caught my eye was really this failure landscape that you lay out. And when you lay out that failure landscape, you talk about these two types of failure cultures we're living in. And yeah. it's actually very interesting. It's almost like an East Coast, West Coast, Eastern versus Western, um, you know, uh, like, you know, the power of abundance versus the power of scarcity uh, that's being laid and framed out there. Talk about those two types of failures that we've been living in this kind of bipolar world and how we get out of that think thought process. It's it's really, it's two types of messaging, isn't it? It's it's the, yes. the messaging, what I'll talk about as the, you know, the Silicon Valley messaging of fail fast, fail often, failure is great. Let's have a failure party and and be sure to produce your failure yeah. resume, you know, and that's, that's all great. Great. I'll come back to when and why it's great. But meanwhile, there are people listening to that and going, hold on a minute. I live in the real yep. world. You know, in yep. my job, that's not it's not OK for me to fail or mm -hmm. all the way over to, you know, the the old failure is not an option messaging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who's right? And, and the truth is both camps are right. It's all a big it depends. It depends on the context. Yep. Fail fast, fail often is a terrific message for innovation contexts, right? For scientific laboratory or entrepreneurship contexts. Fail fast, fail often makes sense if you're in new territory and there's no other way to get the new knowledge you need to make progress, make a contribution. You have no choice but to take the risk of failure. And we can go into some of the details of what, you know, what, what that good failure looks like, what I call intelligent failure uh, in that context. But this is not about welcoming or promoting sloppiness in other contexts, yes. familiar contexts. Yeah, you, you talked about uh, in your book, basic, complex and intelligent are, are types of failure. You also talked about awareness zones. You talk about self-situation and systems. Can you talk a little bit about the three awareness zones? 
Sure. So when I talk about the science of failing well, it's hard to say that because it keeps sounding like feeling well, but I'm talking about failing well. Um, mm -hmm. And and let, let me first just say quickly what that is, because I truly think it's about engaging in smarter experiments, knowing mm -hmm. full well that some of those will end in failure, but those are intelligent failures, and also doing your very best to prevent the preventable basic and complex failures that we can talk more about if you wish. And then I describe in the second part of the book, three competencies that I think really help us do this. And one competency is really the competency of self-awareness, of being more aware of your impact on others, being more aware of how your mental models and your frames might limit the options you see or might mm -hmm. predispose you to want to be perfect or get things right rather than to learn and grow and try new things and to, you know, to, to, to stretch, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the fundamental, I think, competency of self-awareness is to choose and to keep choosing learning over knowing when everything in us is predisposed to wanting to feel that, you know, we don't want to be wrong. We want, we want to think that our sizing up of the situation is right, is, is, is sort of the, the situation is we, we know what reality is. And if you disagree with me, that that's your problem, you know, versus fully aware that I see an aspect of reality um, and that there's many things I'm missing and I'm dying to learn from you what you're seeing, what I'm missing, or I'm dying to try something new to see what happens, right? There's a, there's a kind of a curiosity, an awareness of how you might be impacting the situations for better or for worse that help you learn, that help you experiment, that help you choose learning and growth over, you know, knowing and stagnation. Context awareness or situation awareness is my favorite of the three because mm -hmm. it's um, it's so simple, um, but I think so powerful to become more context aware. And there's two dimensions of context I suggest we pay attention to. And one is the degree of uncertainty, right? And that really also has to do with the degree of novelty. You know, am I in a scientific laboratory where no one's ever figured out this discovery before? Or uh, am I in a manufacturing line where we know exactly what to do to achieve Six Sigma quality? So uncertainty varies. And then the other thing that varies, of course, are the stakes. You know, to mm -hmm. what extent is there risk to human life possible here or economic risks that, that we would better be sure we can afford to take before we experiment or reputational risks, especially in our era of social media. So, so thinking through the degree mm -hmm. of risk or, or the, the how high are the stakes uh, in this situation and how much uncertainty is describes a landscape in which we can then know how much uh, and and how effectively to experiment and and um, that's that's just a a basic but often under practiced competency and the third one is systems thinking it's it's system awareness to be aware of how parts the relationships between parts in a system say an organization a family a product um, can interact in ways that produce unintended effects that had you thought it through just a little longer. You could have you could have um, pre prevented some preventable failures. 
No, this is great. And it's coming from decades of research that you've put together. And one of the things I really liked is what, you had a two by two figure that talked about, I think, psychological safety and standards in failure science. Uh, that two by two graph that kind of really summarized a lot of what people were feeling. Can you talk through that for a little bit and kind of explain to people since yeah, we're trying to sure. do it visually uh, through the show? So you know, I, I think you can see the connection from psychological safety and the research there. Psychological safety I define as a belief that you can take the interpersonal risks of learning, of speaking mm -hmm. up about errors, mistakes, failures, of asking for help when you're in over your head, of dis offering a dissenting perspective. All of those behaviors that are so important for effectiveness in modern organizations, but can be interpersonally difficult to do. That's what psychological safety is all about. And many people have taken that in recent years to mean, you know, taking psychological safety to mean that I will feel comfortable and, mm. you know, a, a, a sense of well-being at all times. And, and honestly, it's not that. Um, it's, it's, um, it's actually that sense of freedom to learn, freedom to take risks and knowing they won't backfire on you catastrophically. You won't be kicked out of the team because you make a mistake or yep. because you disagree with a perspective that someone else has. In fact, you'll be welcomed because we need that in order to perform well. So I say psychological safety can be high or low. I prefer high, but that's not enough for failing well. You nope. also need that motivation, that, that commitment to excellence, you know, to high standards, to ambition, if you will, right? You you really do want to discover something or to try something or to, to, to solve a tough problem, you know, either by yourself or with your team, mostly in my, in the work I do, the work I study, it's, it's, it's team-based. People are, are in teams working with others to do really hard things. And the argument in that two by two is that if you have very low psychological safety and very low commitment to, to excellence, that's not going to be fun. <laughs> that's not going to be fun. That's kind of the apathy zone, right? And, and if you're in, you know, if you've got high commitment to excellence, but you're terrified to speak up with an idea, that's not a terribly good zone for performance. And sure, if it was just all psychological safety and none of the other, eh, that's the old comfort zone, you know, not much happening there, but it sure is comfortable. Whereas to really engage in the science of failing well, you need both, right? You need that motivation and you need that freedom. And but Amy, Amy, that is the genius of what you did. You took the West Coast version of fail fast, yeah. fail often. You took the other piece and put That's it together, but you added the dimension that was so important for people to understand is we need the constraints in that spectrum. And if you can't right. see that excellence aspect, I mean, you're going to fail poorly. You need both. Right. You need both. In fact, I think I like the way you put that because it is it is in a sense a marrying of the East and the West, the East, East Coast, where where there's at least an espoused commitment to excellence and performance yeah. and achievement. Not that um, we on the West Coast it, don't have excellence. but And then there's happy talk about failure, which, of course, everyone in Silicon Valley knows that the happy talk about failure is because of the pursuit of excellence. Yes. But it's the pursuit of excellence in doing new things that haven't been but done. Never articulated as you have. So. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's my number one thinker in the world, Ray. Management thinker, please. Management thinker, management <laughs> thinker. Yes. So we have a lot of CEOs. We're very fortunate, Ray and I. We have a lot of CEOs that come on the show. Universally, they talk about the importance of culture. They talk about certain attributes that they 
that they try to cultivate in their company, self-awareness, humility, a beginner's mindset, many of the components that perhaps we talked about. So how, how do you advise companies to create a healthy failing culture? Failure culture, yeah. Failure yeah. culture. Yeah. I don't want a failing culture. I want a failure, failure culture. culture. <laughs> Actually, a healthy failure culture, let me describe what that would mean, would be one where there is a willingness to experiment, but also a commitment to excellence in execution in known territory. Right? We, we expect Six Sigma uh, in a healthy failure culture. And by the way, one of the ways we get Six Sigma or very high quality and known territories because people are willing to speak up when something is sure. slightly off, right? Not necessarily, not, not even, I don't even have to be a hundred percent confident that I see an error. I just have to think, Ooh, that might not be right. Hmm. And I'm willing to speak up about it. That's a healthy failure culture. Um, and, and so how do you get that? Well, I think it's, um, it's messaging, it's behavior and more behavior. And the messaging is around, you know, reminding people of the nature of the work we do and why mm -hmm. it matters, but even more importantly, why it's so dependent on our willingness to speak up, to offer ideas, you know, to point to problems. Like just keep reminding people, whether it's healthcare delivery or entrepreneurship or new products and services in an R&D department, um, this is what we're doing. It's hard. It's exciting. We need you. That's the kind of the nature of the messaging. And then the behavior of just asking good questions, of inviting voices in, of going around and maybe in a check-in or ensuring that people, it's one thing to say, we really need to hear from you. It's another to directly ask for it. You know, you're doing that right now. When you ask me a question, I guarantee you it would be so awkward to the point of impossible for me to just sit here quietly. Once you've asked me a good question, right? There's a compulsion that you must answer. That's just behaviorally irresistible. Right? So, so if you expect people to kind of offer their ideas, ask for them. Like, what are you seeing out there? What are customers struggling with? Um, you know, how, how are things landing? What ideas do you have? And so forth. And finally, how do you respond, especially to bad news? The old yeah. saying, don't shoot the messengers, I think doesn't go nearly far enough. You must learn to hug your message messengers. Not I love that. literally, necessarily, yeah, sure. uh, but metaphorically. Right? <laughs> Thank you so <laughs> much. You know? Thank you so much. You know, don't shoot the message. Like, okay, you gave me a bad message and I'm going to let you live. Great. Right? No, it's... it's <laughs> Truly, thank you for that clear line of sight, right? That, that, that make the person feel, because these things are not fun and easy to do, but make someone who is disagreeing or is bringing bad news feel um, welcomed and, and appreciated. So there's an element of observability, hopefully from top down, where senior business leaders are interested and they're appreciative and accessible. yeah. yeah. They're, they're um, you know, they're interested, they're appreciative, they're accessible. They're also inspiring right? because, I mean, I think they mm. are conveying a sense of why what we do matters because it is a given that what we do is challenging. Sure. That, 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 you know, this isn't, you're asking people, you know, it's work, right? I mean, it may be fun work uh, like all of us have. But it's still work and, and it's not something you do lazily or in your sleep. It's something that I think you need to be invited and invigorated uh, to, to just feel 
truly motivated to engage in it. And it keeps the so, sense of oh, urgency in the organization as well. You yeah. Know, where you're, which is critically important given the pace of change. You really have to bring your A game as often as you can. That's uh, right. To, to work. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, so actually, so how do we get to a higher state where we've done minimizing simple failures, we've mitigated complex failures, and I can go pursue intelligent failures? Because I really love that in your book. Like, I, I yeah. want to get to that point where that other stuff gets automated by AI, and I start looking for intelligence. <laughs> right. like, well, I think it's not um, sequential. It's it's not that here. Okay, first, I took it the wrong way. It's yeah. not sequential. Yeah. First, it's get your. I mean, sequence. you could you could think of it sequential. It's sequential in the grand sense, right? The old, you know, the old S curve of of say any yep. any company, any startup. There's there's the mucking around part, which is full of intelligent failures, and yep. um, finally we find some replicable formula that we can sell and and sell at a profit, and then we go into high growth mode, and 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 we grow and we get efficient, and our emphasis is on on efficiency mm -hmm. and trying as best we can to have error free performance and and um, delivery of that of that product uh, or service. Um, and then eventually customers get tired of that or the world changes and we need to reinvigorate, right? So that's the old, and then start on a new curve. But I think in any you know organization, small or large, but especially medium and larger organizations, you've got to be doing both at the same time. You've got parts of your organization that are almost 100% focused on R&D, on trying to come up with the the products and services that we will sell tomorrow um, and to ensure the long-term health uh, of, of the company. And we've got people delivering with excellence the things we already know how to do that customers are happy to pay us for today. What we want, of course, is for the, the, the part that's delivering today in known territory to be doing that as failure-free uh, as, as possible, mm -hmm. right? That you, you know, no, no customer wants to get a faulty product product. Um, and then meanwhile, we want these people over here behind closed doors to be having lots of failures, but but good failures, you know, not the kind of, you could be a scientist in a laboratory where you spend your life pursuing, you know, successes, but that requires you tolerate lots of intelligent failures along the way. That doesn't mean you're off the hook and immune to basic failure. If you aren't paying attention and you mix up two chemicals in your experiment and use the wrong mm -hmm. one, that's a basic failure. And that used up time, money, and you know other resources and didn't bring you any new information. Sure. This may be a hard question for you to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Seven-time author, multiple best-selling author. So you've done this successfully uh, for so long. But did you have any good failures writing this book? Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, so there's, <laughs> there's the small and the large, right? So the, you know, I like to, I mean, I, I have to admit that in writing the book every day I had failures in the, in the really? sense of, well, just, I mean, the small, right? Because yeah. I'd write a paragraph and read it and go, it's crap, right? It's, it's, it's literally on its way to the trash that. can. It's not going to stay in the book. And, and sometimes I, there's like a story that I really liked. Um, but my, my editor, once I send that chapter over says, no, this one's got to go. It's like, oh. okay. You know, and I, I trust her judgment. So off it goes, but that's a failure, right? That's the number oh. one business management thinker has stuff yeah, on the cutting know? room floor. I love right. that. Of course. I mean, no book. I, I, my, 
view of any book and you've written books, but my view of any book is, you know, let's say it's a 300 page book. You mm. probably wrote 3000 pages in, in yeah. just, oh, sure, you know, sure. as you were going, even if, even if it's just tweaking. So, sure. so writing is a process full of failure, but I, sure. I also, I, 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 you know, I knew, okay, I, I'm, I'm writing a book about failure. I'm going to have to admit to some of my own. And I, I opened the book with, uh, my my very first research project, which at least mostly ended in a failure, which is devastating. Except that that's mm. that's the sport I signed up to play. You know, if you're going to have a <laughs> hypothesis, some of them will some of them will not be supported by data. Uh, but that's of course clearly an intelligent well, not clearly, but it was an intelligent failure. I will argue. So then I thought, well, I I better make sure that I also include some of my just stupid failures. You know, basic failures. Um, and even it, I even put in, a, in there somewhere a complex failure. And, and because, you know, and, and one of the, one of the basic failures that I really want to help people avoid are ones where there's risk to, 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 to life and safety. Life. Sure. Um, you know, and, and that happens of sure. course in healthcare, but if, if you have people in your, in your um, company working with dangerous uh, equipment, uh, you know, you better make sure they're wearing their safety goggles and they're behaving, um, you know, in a really uh, vigilant way. And um, I was in in a position of operating dangerous uh, equipment called a sailboat, sailing downwind in the Charles River in the aftermath oh. of a little race. And, you know, any experienced sailor, and I am an experienced sailor, knows to be extraordinarily vigilant when you're heading straight downwind because the tiniest wind shift can send that boom flying over the yep. boat. That is fast. That's dangerous. That's like a baseball bat aimed at your head. Sure. And um, oh, yeah. I was just being a little casual and chatting with my crew. And, you know, I'm in the Charles River. That's like the definition of wind shift <laughs> is Charles River. So so this is just plain, you know, lack of vigilance, uh, lack of attention. And um, it happened. And knocked me out of the boat. Nine stitches oh, right goodness. here. Oh, I could have oh, been... No. You know, that was bad. It could have been worse. But, you know, and I felt I felt so oh badly goodness. at the time because, you know, I end up using up the valuable time of of a physician and a physician's assistant. You know, I'm in the I'm in the uh, emergency room, um, obviously had to drop out of the race. I, you know, I got blood all over the boat. I mean, you know, all, all I felt terrible. I mean, really just like I want to die terrible. But then, of course, I had to stop. A little self-awareness, put this in perspective. That was a mistake. That was indeed wow. a mistake. But it is not. Um, it is not one to um, cause so much emotional distress that you can't sort of pick yourself back up and and head forward again. That's amazing. Thank well, you for sharing. No, there was something really interesting in your book that caught my eye. You talked about privileged failure versus the failure pressures minority mm -hmm. groups face. Um, and I also want to touch a little bit on the culture of abundance versus the culture of scarcity, because sometimes it works in the same way. Um, mm, can you share a little true. bit about that? Because, yeah. because it seems to be people walk in with a very different level of risk. Indeed. And, you know, risk, it's interesting because risk is in your risk tolerance varies across people, of course, risk and, and, yes. and, and, and risk. Yeah. So you and I might, might, be facing the exact same risks as, say, entrepreneurs uh, or, or innovators, but you might have a much higher tolerance for risk than I do. So you might take 
bolder actions than I would. And you might then experience more failures, but these are the kinds of failures from which you will learn fast and then achieve greatness more quickly um, than I with my risk aversion. So some of that is just plain personality and some of it is cultural forces, right? So I just yes. discussed this a little bit um, in, toward the end of the book that the unequal license to fail, um, that if mm. you are um, a, a minority in this country and in a in a role or in a position that um, where you are, there are a few others like you from your identity group, whether that's race or gender uh, or, or nationality or religion or sexual orientation, um, you may feel rightly more visible and you might believe rightly that others see you as a representative of that group. Right. So your failure is more costly. Uh, you believe your if you fail, it will reflect badly on others like you. And unfortunately, psychologically, that remains true. Right. I mean, it would be nice if I could just say, don't worry, that's not true. Um, you know, you're just an individual. When you fail, you're just like any other white man failing. Not so. And I'm not the, I'm not even remotely the first person to to say this. I draw from others uh, writings when I write this. But um, in an ideal world, everybody would have equal license to fail, hopefully to fail well, you know, intelligently. Um, but um, but to be risk takers, right, to, to and to occupy uh, positions where it's not a guarantee that everything will go well by, by the nature of the role. It's an amazing observation. And what I tried to do is I applied that to a framework over the last 15 years of, of seeing how immigrants um, go through that life cycle, first gen versus second gen oh, versus yes. third gen. And it's interesting. So if you take the race dimension out of it, the first generation of any group struggling, um, coming in as an immigrant, coming in as a first person of whatever uh, ethnicity they're in, you see that interesting curve. Right. And, and first generation sets up the foundation. Second generation tries to advance from that. And the third generation doesn't understand how that got there. No, I'm just kidding. Third generation gets there <laughs> yeah, the third and has a lot of license and freedom to granted, fail. Right. Yeah. The third <laughs> generation have that license, much to their parents' chagrin. Yes. <laughs> that's so that's how we end up there. But hey, Amy, this has been wonderful talking to you. The right kind of wrong, the science of failing well came up September 5th, 2023. This book is available, definitely an essential for everyone to read. And we're very thankful to have you here. You can follow Amy at Amy C. Edmondson on X. And Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you, Amy. Thank, Thank you. you. Privilege to be with you. Thank you. Privilege is ours. Wow. 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 We've got <laughs> thousands of people <laughs> watching right now. Can you believe this? We have yeah. thousands of people live. We've got comments coming in. You know, if you're following us, this is Live Disrupt TV, first episode of the year. And uh, follow. who do we have next? We only we only have like best selling, big thinking, award winning uh, academics uh, and scholars on our show, and we're privileged to have Matt Abrams, author of Think. I'm a little intimidated by this. Think faster, talk smarter. <laughs> Not a little bit intimidated. Totally intimidated. Can you do both. How to how to speak successfully when you're put on the spot. Matt is a leading expert in communication with decades of experience. As an educator, an author, a successful podcaster, coach, as a lecturer in organizational behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, Matt teaches popular classes in strategic communication and effective virtual presenting. Matt received Stanford's Graduate School of Business Alumni Teaching Award in recognition of his students around the world. Uh, and 
When he isn't teaching, Matt is a sought-after keynote speaker and communication consultant. Matt has helped countless presenters improve and hone their communication, including some of them who've delivered IPO roadshows, as well as TED Talks, uh, World Economic Forum speakers, Nobel Prize uh, uh, presentations. Matt's online talks garner millions of views, and he hosts a very popular award-winning podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smarter, the podcast. Matt is the author of Think Fast, Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. His previous book, Speaking Up Without freaking out. <laughs> That's very important. I got to read that. 50 techniques to, uh, for confident and compelling presenting has helped thousands of people manage speaking anxiety and present more confidently and authentically. I absolutely have anxiety when I present. I don't know why I keep mentioning my deficiencies in Matt's bio. You can follow Matt on X at Abraham's underscore Matt. Welcome, Matt, to Paula, Disrupt TV. <laughs> thank you so much. And you are a great speaker. I have seen awesome. you speak. I, I I don't know what you're talking about. It's an no, honor and a privilege to be here with both of you, and certainly an honor and privilege to follow Amy. Uh, her work is groundbreaking and so important. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, hey, thank we only have groundbreaking folks. You are one of them, and you wrote <laughs> something in here that's very important. This is the myth bust, that the idea that speaking well on the spot requires natural talent or is it innate? Uh, this is very interesting because I think mm -hmm. Bala and I are, believe it or not, we're both introverts. So mm -hmm. this is, uh, we, we, we want to, we, actually, I, I'm, I, yeah, Bala, you're an introvert, right? You and I believe we're 100%. both introverts. And I so started electrical undergraduate, graduate, first 10 years of my career in a cube writing software, and I was very happy. Not that I'm not happy now, but this doesn't <laughs> come easy to me. I'm exhausted when I have to speak. But anyway, but I love so what I do. Is it natural talent uh, or is it innate? And let's start there. So it is certainly something we can all develop. Uh, I think people start at different points on the on the mountain, given that you're skiing. I'll use that as an analogy. I think people start on different parts of the, uh, of the journey up, but it is certainly something that we can work on. And in fact, I have seen it in my own life, in the lives of my students, the people I coach. We can all get better at all communication, but especially spontaneous communication. It takes effort, it takes time, but you can get better, you can feel more comfortable, and you can be more confident in your communication. And you see it in a semester of teaching, like when your students start with you in class, four months later, this this you, you is measurable improvement. Of course, you're an award-winning professor. So <laughs> but but it, it you know Absolutely. Is, it easier, is it easier now than five years ago or 10 years ago? Did social media help folks become more self-aware or be able or, or to- Or mobile phones, or mobile phones. Yeah, I mean, they say brevity is the soul of wisdom. Is if <laughs> folks that are tweeting a lot, are they over time becoming better speakers? I mean, what, what are your observations? Over well, so, the, so there are two different questions there. The first question is, can we get better at a relatively fast clip? And the answer is absolutely yes. There are things you can do that almost immediately help you feel more comfortable and confident communicating in the moment. For example, learning a simple structure, how to package your information, that can help. A few techniques to manage anxiety can help a lot right away. Now, the more interesting detailed question is, is there a difference generationally in how people are developing their communication skills? And and, and in fact, the answer is yes and no. So as I am seeing the younger generations move into my classes. TikTok generation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. This is the first this is the first year 
that yeah. all of our students are of the Gen Z generation at the Stanford Business School, at wow, least those yeah, yeah. who, who you know, who are part yeah. of that program. And are there differences? There are some, both positive and negative. So, you know, I've been teaching a long time. I'm old and I've seen lots of shifts and certainly technology, generative AI. These are changing the way we communicate and our students are much, in many cases, more well-versed in them than, than some of us are. But the, the fundamental struggles of communication, of communicating effectively, confidently, concisely, those persist, those, those transcend generation. And it is important that all of us take the time to hone and develop those skills. Wow. Hey, you, um, I want to get to this very interesting question that is, uh, that, that actually talks about spontaneous speaking and where you are in the alphabet, because I'm a W and you're an A. Yeah. And what's really Vala was an A too, right? And so here, yes, Vala and I, you know, we 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 can hang out. So yes, uh, I have been spontaneously speaking my entire life. I always knew, and Vala, you were probably the same way. You knew where you sat in the classroom, right? You totally. first row, front of the classroom, <laughs> always going first. But interesting, by years of K through twelve. Well, so yeah. so for many reasons, for many yeah. reasons, but but it actually helped me. It it actually, I I am much more comfortable speaking in the moment because I've always done it. In fact, teaching at Stanford's business school is the first time I have not gone first. There is a, a professor, she's wonderful. Her name's Jennifer Ocker, AA. It is the first time I have never been first. But interestingly, Ray, what I find, because I talk about this a lot with people and I have friends whose names fall later in the alphabet, those who come last in the alphabet also have a different spontaneous speaking challenge because you've heard everybody nothing has said something before about. you. Well, right. So you have to come up with something novel and new. So, yeah, right, so right. It, it either ends. We have to be spontaneous. It's those folks with LMN last names. They <laughs> can sort of coast on the, on the hard coast. work we did. Yeah. <laughs> Those privileged individuals got the coast off of us. No, it's <laughs> right. Let's, right. Uh, this is important, right? Spontaneous speaking is not easy, right? So how do yeah. you get, how do you do that? Because you, you right. write a lot about this. Like, dude, on the fly, follow. Hey, give us a speech. You know, you're on stage yeah. or, you know, give us a toast, right? Like we're in these situations all the time. So like, how do you, how do you pick it up and get better at it? Yes. Uh, so first, uh, my book and my my methodology uh, have a lot of counterintuitive notions. We've talked about one already that we can actually get better at it. A lot of people mm -hmm. feel I, I can't, I just, it's not me, but you can, you can get better at it. And the other counterintuitive notion or one of them is that you can actually prepare to be spontaneous, you know, and, and if we think about it a little bit, it makes sense, right? If you've ever played any sports, done skiing, whatever, you practice, you do drills, and then you go in and spontaneously play the game. So you can prepare to be spontaneous. And you're right. The vast majority of our communication in our personal and professional lives is spontaneous. It's not the planned presentation, the pitch, or the meeting with an agenda. It's the giving feedback. It's the fixing our mistakes. It's the apologizing. It's the small talk, the answering questions. That's what most of our communication mm. is. So we can work to get better. And, I, and I've developed a methodology. It has six steps to help us get through it. And the yep. steps divide into two categories, mindset and messaging. And with practice and with pushing yourself to, to try to get better, all of us can improve in our spontaneous speaking. And this is the six I, step I talk that. smarter method, right? The, the, the think fast, talk smarter method. Yes, exactly. Six, so maybe you, you mentioned small talk and, yeah. and I gotta tell you, I'm terrible. You know, I, 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 
look, my parents, I have three kids, two dogs. My parents live with us. Life is busy. I'm not, I'm not super interesting. You know, I work and I enjoy family and friendships, but uh, I, mean, I can talk sports because I'm in Boston and we have had number of champions across multiple teams that I'm intimately familiar with. But generally speaking, like, I, you know, when a conversation starts, like, what do you do? I have to explain chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. The last time somebody asked me, I paused and I said, well, I, I read and write. And they looked at me like, we all do that. So <laughs> you, you told me nothing. <laughs> I meant right. to say, you know, I wrote a book. I write weekly yeah. column for ZDNet. I have a podcast. But it came out, I read and write. And it was like, I felt like, oh, my God, what a terrible way to introduce yourself. How do you help folks with small talk? Because yeah. I think the anxiety I have with both imposter syndrome and being an uh, introvert is that I know I don't really do well when, when people are trying to get to know me. <laughs> well, I think you probably do better than you think. And, and, and I can certainly relate living in an area where we have some pretty good sports teams as well. So it's yes, yes. something to talk about. But yeah, Ray and I, we, we support our, our teams too. Yes, yes. But, when I, when I wrote the book, the book is divided into two parts. The first part is the methodology. And then the second part gives six situations that we commonly find ourselves in spontaneously speaking. And I was surprised to find that small talk is what seems to resonate more than the other parts. I thought it would be oh. Q&A and feedback. Many of us struggle with small talk. And, and first, mm. I have to say, I am on a personal mission to help rebrand small talk. All small right. talk is a big deal. Big, good things happen in small talk. In fact, I challenge both of you, Vala and Ray and everybody listening, think about some of your closest friends that you have. How did you get to know them and how did you get closer? Chances are it was through small talk. Think you about some of the most important yep, deals yep, that you've yep, made yep. or learnings that you've had. It happens through small talk. So we often write it away as a frivolous, uh, you know, necessary evil when in fact big things happen. So the question becomes, how do we do it better? And there's a key in what you said, Vala. Uh, on my podcast, I got to know uh, somebody wonderful. Her name is Rachel Greenwald. I interviewed her for the book and for the podcast. She's a fascinating person. She's an academic and a professional matchmaker. So this notion of small talk oh, is wow. right in her wheelhouse. <laughs> and she told me something that counters something that you said. You said, I'm not very interesting. And that's fine because her mantra for a good small talk is this. It's about being interested, not interesting. And what that means is we lead with curiosity, lead with questions, lead with observations. That's how you get things started. And once they get started, most people feel more comfortable with it. So avoid those doom loops that you talked about. Hi, what do you do? I don't know. What do you do? Right. And all of a sudden that gets us nowhere. But if you if you comment on something that a shared experience, maybe you're at a corporate event. You're doing a mixer afterwards. Talk about the keynote that some great speaker named Vala gave. Uh, it could be that you notice, hey, everybody's wearing ski goggles here. I didn't get the memo. What's going on? So you make these observations, and that's what awesome. gets it going. The last thing I'll say about this, and I know I'm going a little long here. No, the big great. thing that the big thing that freaks people out about small talk is we don't know how to get out of it. Right. And and we usually end up relying on our biology. I'm hungry. I'm Gotta thirsty. Get a I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Rachel has another bit of advice that I have so stress true. tested and it works so well. True. She calls it the white flag approach, not white flag like surrender, but white flag in auto racing. They wave a white oh, flag yeah. and signal yeah. the last lap. 
So in your small talk, when you're ready to wrap up, do the same thing. Simply say, in a few minutes, I'm going to go talk to those people over there. But before I go, I have one more question, or I'd like to follow up on one thing. So oh, what you I do love is this. you signal that you're moving on. We've so the other boxed. person can We've begin to prayer. Exactly. Exactly. It works beautifully. So just being interested, not interesting, start with curiosity, comment on what's going on around you, use the white flag approach to exit, and all of a sudden, small talk becomes a big opportunity. This is brilliant. When we had Tom Peters on the show, he reminded us the soft skills are the hard skills. Now That's with you I on the show, yes. small talk is a big deal. Absolutely. <laughs> and and I, I really, I bristle against this notion of soft skills yeah, yeah. because they are so critical and important and that totally. downplays their relevance. We all mm -hmm. know people and even in our own lives where totally. the soft skills have made a big difference between 100%. success and failure. 100%. In fact, I don't know anyone who's super successful that doesn't demonstrate their mastery of soft skills. You know, I mean, we, even Amy reminded us, you know, beginner's mindset, self-awareness, empathy, you know, a, a contextual understanding Contact of your surroundings. The these are all, these are, yeah. You so. bet, you bet. Hey, related to that, there's a bunch of questions that people do ask. And, and here's one that is actually very, very important. Um, how do you stop someone who's talking too much from taking all the airtime? Like what, what technique do you have there to at so, least help include other people into the conversation and bring other ideas in there? Kind of to the situational awareness that Amy was kind of alluding at just at the individual level, but at a group level. So, Ray, are you asking that directed at me? Am no, I talking? No, no, no. You're a guest. No. You're a guest. Right. I think we're Speak talking to you for too an much. hour. We We're talking to you the whole hour. So, whole hour. so, yeah. so it, it happens often. And there are lots of reasons people talk more than they should. Sometimes it's out of malice. They want to show they're the best or the brightest. Other times it's they're discovering what they want to say as they're saying it. And they sort of get lost. I believe the single best tool, and I think this is one of the top three communication tools everybody should be, develop and use, is paraphrasing. Paraphrasing where you highlight or summarize some key point somebody has said is critical to shutting somebody down. So if somebody's pontificating and going on and on, simply jump in by highlighting some crucial element, something important that they've said and comment on it and then move on. Paraphrasing is a delightful skill that helps you do that, but it doesn't happen by itself. It is always partnered with good listening, Nope. That's what starts. You paraphrase, and then there has to be a link, a bridge to something else. So I don't just interrupt Ray and say, oh, that point about uh, the black diamond that you skied is really important because then Ray's going to start telling me more about it. I say, and I was really enjoyed skiing this other mountain. And I'm wondering, Vala, have you been there? So I always follow paraphrasing with some bridge or link to something else. So direct, listen direct. intently, paraphrase <laughs> and bridge and link you can manage a conversation and shut somebody down who needs to stop talking. This is going to be so, so useful at Davos. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck. Yeah, good luck. Big ego. I just don't want you attributing it to me. I don't want you to say, wait, <laughs> yeah, this that guy said that I 19,000 people you. watching yeah. this live right now as, yeah, of, as yeah. of now. But yeah, okay. Big, big, big right. ego's little ears. Um, right. So Matt remind us, reminded us of, of good listening. Can yeah. you expand on the importance of, to me, it feels like a prerequisite for you to be able to think fast is you have to be a good listener. Can you Absolutely. talk about like, how do, you, how do you build that listening? And of course, you already reminded us, be interested. So yeah. I suspect if you can build your be interested muscle, part of that is improving your listening skills. 
You bet. You bet. So uh, in the methodology, the step number four is all about listening. And, and we have mm -hmm. to listen well so we can learn how to respond appropriately. I want to give you uh, two examples. But before I do, it's very clear we are not good listeners. We listen just enough to get the gist of what somebody's saying, and then we begin judging, evaluating, et cetera. And in so doing, we miss nuance. In fact, somebody I talked to the other day said his definition of listening is waiting his turn to speak. And that's uh -huh. not the right way to approach listening. <laughs> so let's imagine this situation. Let's imagine that we three exit a, a meeting that we were all in, and Ray turns to me and says, Matt, how do you think that went? If I'm listening only superficially, I hear Ray wants feedback. So I start itemizing all the things we did wrong or we could have done better. But had I really listened, and by listening, I mean, it's not just the words that were said, but how they were said, the context in which they were said. I might have noticed Ray came out the back door, not the front door. Ray was looking oh. down, speaking a little more quietly than normal. What I would have recognized had I listened better was that Ray really didn't want feedback. He wanted support. And the fact that I piled on all these things that went wrong actually potentially did damage to our relationship. God, so that's what happened to my critical. wife last night. No, I, was yeah. <laughs> hey, I have to tell you. That's a different story. I played that one wrong. I have to tell you that uh, my wife, who's sitting on the other side of this door, she fumes when I talk about listening skills because she says, you do not practice what you teach. So I'm still learning. We're all a work in progress. The way I believe we can learn to listen better is one, to listen for the bottom line, not the top line. What's the person really saying? And when we listen intently, yeah. we actually hear better. And then I, I borrow a framework from a colleague of mine. His name's Collins Dobbs. And it's three things, pace, space, grace. If you want to be a better listener, we have to slow things down. We have to slow the pace down. Life comes at us fast and furious. To listen well, we have to slow down, which might mean that we move to a different place or we say, hey, you know what? Let's let's have this conversation in a few minutes when I, I can actually focus. So slow the pace down. We have to not only go to a space we can listen in, but mentally we have to allocate space where we can really focus. And then finally, give ourselves a little bit of grace, permission to listen intently, not only to what is said, but how it is said, where it is said, and our intuition that comes up as a result of that listening. So by focusing on the bottom line, giving ourselves a little pace, space, and grace, we can all listen better. In the example you use, you reference Ray walking out of the back door versus front. How much of listening is with your eyes? How, how much, how, how much oh, of it is absolutely. I mean, obviously it's, your ears, but how yeah. yeah, full body listening, right? Um, I, I've got to find the name of this person. I heard a talk and I want to attribute this to him. He was talking about, uh, he was a jazz musician. And then there's a lot that we can learn from jazz in terms of spontaneous speaking. Mm, uh, and yeah. I was listening to his talk and he said that his teacher uh, he, who taught him jazz said, when you listen to jazz, you have to listen until you sweat. And that notion of listening so intently, so full bodied, that's what we have to do. We listen with our eyes, our ears, what's going on in the environment. That's critical to being successful. Wow, that is amazing. It's like a master class. In master class for the last hour. Uh, this is crazy. So so I, I do have a question. And I, I love the last chapter, which talks about how to say you're sorry. And, and I think that's a very important skill. Uh, and and you, you talk about it. And there's a, there's a good way to do it. Uh, and you kind of explain it. So I'll, I'll let you pick it up from there. So, 
Right. So, so the, apologizing is something that we often have to do in the, in the moment. And it, it's something that many of us struggle with. And, and many of us do it inappropriately, uh, meaning that we don't really apologize. We, we, we say we're sorry for how we make people feel uh, mm-hmm. rather for, for what it is that we actually did. And so we really have to take time to apologize well. One of the major steps in the methodology and in the book, and I think for all effective communication, is structure. Structure is critical to effective communication. When we are in the moment and we are having to figure out what to say, many of us take our audiences on the journey of our discovery of what it is we want to say. In other words, we just list out information. Our brains are not wired to receive lists or process lists. In fact, I'd love for both of you to think, how many items do you need to get from the grocery store before you actually have to write them down, have a list? If you're like me, it's like four or five. We're not good with lists. So structure, a a logical connection of ideas, beginning, middle, and an end, help. And with each of these spontaneous speaking situations, giving feedback, answering questions, making small talk, I provide a sample structure to help. And when it comes to apologizing, the structure that I teach is Triple A, just like roadside service here in, in the United States. Triple A will help you. It's three steps. And this is the way you can structure a good, solid apology. First, you have to acknowledge the incident. What is it that you did? Oh, Second, yeah. you have to appreciate the consequences for the person. And third, you make amends. Now, there are times where things happen where, where the apology needs to be immediate. And there are times where you have to think about when is the best time to apologize. But let's imagine that we're in a meeting and I interrupt you and I start overspeaking what you're saying. And I, I feel badly about this. So I want to apologize. So what I might do is I and let's say, Vala, this happened to you. I was the one who overspoke. I, I might say, Vala, uh, I'm really sorry that I interrupted you and finished your thought and added my own. That's acknowledging what I did. I can imagine when I did that, that it felt really bad and made you feel like I didn't value your opinion. That's acknowledging. The next time we're in a meeting together, I'm not only going to listen fully to what you say, I'm actually going to paraphrase what you've said before I add my contribution to not only demonstrate that I heard you, but to show that that what I you're saying is something I respect. Apology By, accepted. Well, thank, you. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. But by following that structure, acknowledge, appreciate, amends, AAA, it helps me because in that moment where I'm feeling bad or I'm like, oh my goodness, how do I apologize? I know the structure. It's the GPS. It's the roadmap I follow. And that allows me to be more present, to be more connected, and to respond to you in the moment. Ray, you and I need to audit Matt's course. We need to go and sit in the back of the room and take notes. We're going to let Ray sit in the front of the room because he yeah, doesn't right, have to do right, that. Right. Right. Let the W's go in the front. That's right. And, and he's a nerdy bring him student. Over to... He'll give you an apple. He'll bring an apple. He lives close by, Ray. Come on by. Sit in my class. Yeah, come on I'm, by I'm the house anytime. from no, where you live. Yeah. No, no, we will, we will camp out. We will definitely do this. I, I actually want to bring you into our team and and do this for some training. I mean, it would be awesome. I'd love to. But, uh, but yeah, it, 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 uh, but I do have to apologize to the audience. We are unfortunately out of time, which is not good. We have got Matt Abrams, author of Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully. When you're put on the spot, you can follow him at X Abrams underscore Matt. And uh, 
was an amazing discussion. And I think I've learned a ton. And we've got 20,000 people have already viewed this that probably have learned a ton. So you're awesome, Matt. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. This was a true pleasure. You're terrific. We'll see you in the green room. So. I recommend Matt's book to anyone. I mean, you and I, Ray, we've been in front of what? Last year, I think the largest audience I presented to was 10,000 people. I need to take Matt's courses. I, to read it, you know? I think, we, I think I, we've got some I, refresher I, work like, to do here. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I could definitely, including the how to apologize appropriately. That was, that that was, was just good. awesome sauce for an hour. Holy smokes. What a way to kick off 2024. Big thinkers at the best schools, coast to coast teaching us. Ray, do us a favor and summarize what we learned in the last hour in less than 60 seconds. I will apologize up front. I cannot do justice to these amazing <laughs> guests. <laughs> but what we learned uh, in terms of getting the right kind of wrong, uh, the science of failing with Amy Edmondson, I think what was really important here was just understanding the the notion of failure is not the notion that many of us might have grown up with. There's performance, there's failure. We've been put that together, but there's a lot more we can do with our teams to be successful and a lot more we can do on not just a way that we communicate, but the way that we actually respect each other. And more importantly, the way we reward each other for success, it all comes together. And a lot of management uh, is really culture. If you don't have culture in place, you can't put this together. And this is a framework. It's almost like a fundamental uh, course that people should be all taking at the same time to understand how you work together on a team. So I, at least I got that. What did you get out of that, Bala? So I think you are able to articulate when you have a ski hat and goggles on your head for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. That was terrific. That was terrific. And if Keep I took in the class with Matt on spontaneous speaking, which you, you put me on the spot every week, <laughs> I would be faster at this. Uh, but what I think I learned from Matt was really that there, there's a lot of different ways of communication styles. And I love the fact that that six step talk smarter method, uh, it's a great way to, to actually make people feel comfortable to actually listen, to be there in the moment, uh, to really improve the communications and effectiveness. Uh, we're living in a world of AI and what's going to be happening are machines are gonna be talking to machines. When the humans get involved, we better be good at what we do. And that level <laughs> of fidelity, that level of precision in how we talk and engage. I mean, talking to humans is a lot of friction right? It's the context. It's understanding how to set it up. It's making sure people are in the right position or the right frame of thought. And, you know, I, I think if you brought both of these folks together, uh, you know, both Amy and Matt, uh, you know, in one room, I mean, that would be an amazing conversation. <laughs> so, amazing. so there you go, Val. That's my summary for the, uh, for the show for the that's, week. Uh, what do you have to add? Yeah. That's an amazing summary. I just, when I listen to Matt, I just, it's a reminder that words matter. Words matter. And remarkable people use impeccable words. Um, and it's not just your spoken ability, but your ability to be interested, to, 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 to listen well. Um, it's hard. I think it's more than the 10,000 hours that Gladwell, uh, it's a lifetime journey of, of learning how to fail well and learning how to use impeccable words. And you just have to continuously stay teachable. And fortunately for you and I, this is the reason we do Disrupt. Because for at least one hour a week, you and I are guaranteed to be students in the room. And vast majority of the time, we're actually <laughs> trying to consult and teach. So uh, this is really an invaluable hour of my week. Um, because for me, it's harder to stay teachable as I get older. Speaking of invaluable, you, yeah, hopefully for, yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying. Our benevolence is an important word for me. In, for me. It's our intention is to educate and inspire you. We don't sell you anything. 
We get sponsors begging us to sponsor Disrupt. And for eight years, we've said no. So, you know, we're just here to learn as a community and to hopefully educate, inspire, and maybe ignite positive action in terms of how you lead your life and how you bring your best self to work. Next week, talk about two exceptional authors and technologists. Mark Vinovic, who's the Chief Digital AI Strategist, Global Social Innovation Technology Executive and Chair. He's a UN advisor, he's a private investor, and he's an author columnist. He's got a best-selling book in, uh, in terms of AI and how it can improve society in the world. We have W. Russell Newman, author of Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. And he's a founding faculty at the MIT Media Lab, and he has served as senior policy analyst in the White House of Science and Technology Policy. So Russell Newman and Mark Minovic, next, bring, bring your popcorn, uh, buckle your seatbelt, because you're going to go on an hour of amazing technologists and futurists shaping the strategy using emerging technologies like AI for next week's show. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We've kicked off 2024 with the best and brightest. We welcome you to continue to guide us, inspire us, and let us know who you want to see on Disrupt for the remainder of the year. We're kind of fully booked for the next 90 days, but we'll do yes, our we best to bring for. folks in April, May, June, and, and beyond. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Bye. Matt and Amy, we'll see you in the green room.